This is the My Dark Path podcast. The holidays are upon us and everyone here at My Dark Path is proud and excited. We're coming to the finish of our first season, and if I don't mind saying so, it feels a bit like a holiday miracle. We've produced 26 podcast episodes and two full video episodes in our first year of existence. And while it often felt like we were building the plane while we were flying it, we never missed a release date, and I am incredibly proud of the team we've assembled the stories we've told, and the standards we've set for a podcast and YouTube channel that aims to intrigue and excite while paying the proper respect to history and science. We're going to take a couple of weeks off after this episode, but season two is already in the works, and we'll be launching on January 11th with an incredible tale of naval exploration and disaster, the true story of the quest for the Northwest Passage in the Arctic. But to give you something to listen to over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to release the first chapter of my first novel, Seen by Moonlight. Seen by Moonlight has all the hallmarks of a My Dark Path episode, history, science, and the paranormal, all woven into an awesome fictional adventure story. Also, we're now regularly releasing YouTube videos, so you can find us on YouTube at My Dark Path. Leave us a comment in any of our posted videos and you can get a free hard copy of my novel Arcade or a My Dark Path t-shirt from season one. So while there's still a lot going on with My Dark Path, our team has earned the time to celebrate these days however it suits them. The holidays offer unique pleasures to the history nerd, since behind every celebration is a fascinating blend of facts and folklore, of tradition and evolution. Anytime you think to yourself that this is just the way it's always been done, the truth turns out to be far more intriguing. Take Santa Claus, the beloved gift-giving mascot of Christmas with his team of reindeer and his workshop in the North Pole. Did you know that his bones are in Italy? That's one way to look at it. Many of the myths around the figure we call Saint Nick begin with the 4th century Greek bishop born in modern-day Turkey known as Saint Nicholas of Myra, or Nicholas the Wonder Worker. Legends tell of his exploits as a secret gift-giver to the poor. In one of the most popular stories, a local Christian lost all of his wealth to misfortune, and with no dowry for his three daughters, he feared that they would be forced into prostitution after his death. St. Nicholas, the story goes, threw a bag of gold through his window at night. After his death, what are believed to be his remains were moved multiple times as territory changed hands during the Crusades, and to the best of our knowledge now, they were actually split up in the 11th century, and some of his bones are in Venice, and the rest are in the Basilica di San Nicola in the southern Italian city of Bari. So it's a long way to get from a long dead bishop with a chopped up skeleton to the figure we know as Santa today. And it passes through the English tradition of Father Christmas, the old Norse god Odin, the legendary American poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, and some drawings by the 19th century cartoonist Thomas Nast. For me, knowing the incredible history behind the modern image of the jolly old elf at the North Pole only makes him more fascinating. But Christmas obviously isn't just a Santa's holiday. After all, it's there in the name. And for Christians, it's a day we celebrate the birth of Jesus. 
And even people who don't share Christian beliefs probably know a few of the highlights. Being born to a virgin mother, working as a carpenter, gathering his apostles to spread the word of God, atoning for the sins of the world, dying by crucifixion at the hands of the Roman Empire before being resurrected. Now, we're not going to unpack that story here, but rather, I want to take you far away from the Holy Land to tell you a story about Jesus you've probably never heard of, one that mixes history and legend and mystery in a way that we just couldn't resist learning more about, and it all takes place in Japan. I first visited Japan almost 20 years ago and have been back almost two dozen times since then. While it's a country and people I loved instantly on my first visit, I've come to appreciate it even more as several members of my immediate family have lived in the country for years. One element of Japan that's endlessly fascinating to me is the contrast that exists between the modernity of the country's cities and the preservation of its traditional culture in rural areas. Aomori Prefecture is in the northernmost part of Honshu, the main island of Japan. While we think of Japan as a densely populated country, most of Aomori is nothing like the hustle and bustle of Tokyo. It's miles of forest-covered mountains barely touched by the modern world. The people who live there are primarily fishers and farmers, although they've started to make their living in the tourist trade because, for a number of reasons, curious people are drawn to visit there. There have been numerous reports of UFO sightings, and you know how irresistible that is to us here at My Dark Path. A Buddhist temple called Mount Osore sits in the caldera of an active volcano, and local tradition holds that it is one of the gateways to hell. In 1935, a small stone pyramid was discovered, centuries old and with no clues to its origin. It's one of many sites in the prefecture which locals claim have healing energies. There's also a rich collection of local ghost stories. But the site which causes the most curiosity sits on top of a little hill in the small town of Shingo, far up the winding road through the mountains and east of Lake Tawada. The town has less than 2,500 people. Most of the land is dedicated to yam farms and cattle ranches. This little hill sits just on the outskirts, on a site that's maintained by the local yogurt factory. The entry fee is just 100 yen, or less than a dollar, but some 20,000 people a year come to this little hilltop in this faraway town, where there are two centuries-old burial mounds, each surrounded by a white picket fence. And in a country where Christianity walked a very dark path after missionaries first arrived there, these ancient mounds are each topped with a wooden cross. Because here in Shingo, in the Amori Prefecture of Japan, the locals will tell you, with absolute faith, is where Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is buried, having died there at the age of 106. Hi, I'm M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. And since friends stay in touch, please reach out to me on Instagram, sign up for our newsletter at mydarkpath.com, or just send an email to explore at mydarkpath.com. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, thanks for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. Let's get started with episode 26, The Messiah Goes to Japan. 
part one. We'll tell you the Japanese version of Jesus' life story later. It's important first that we lay some groundwork about the tumultuous history of Christianity in this nation. To this day, less than 1% of the population is Christian. The dominant religion in Japan is a unique blend of Buddhism and the ancient ways of Shinto, the native Japanese belief that there are kami, gods and living spirits, inside all things. We're going to dig deeper into this captivating belief system next year on our Valentine's Day episode about the legend of Aoya Oshichi, the Fire Maiden. But to the best of our knowledge, Christianity first reached these islands in the mid-16th century, 1549 to be exact. It was only six years after the first known Europeans visited this island nation, a group of Portuguese merchants who landed on the island of Tanagashima and traded flintlock firearms and gunpowder to the locals. Christianity arrived here, as it did in many places during this period, with a group of Jesuit missionaries. A group of them in Malacca in Southeast Asia were visited by a man we only know by the name of Anjiro. He invited them to visit his country, said that it would be receptive to Christian beliefs, that the Japanese were ready to convert. And while it took them some time to answer his invitation, in July of 1549, the missionary Francis Xavier and three other Jesuit priests made the journey. But for three weeks, every port they attempted to dock at refused to let them enter. And finally, on August 15th, they were allowed to land at Kagoshima on the island of Kushu. The reality, they soon learned, was much more complicated than what this Anjiro had promised them. How do you tell a foreign culture a story about a man who died over 15 centuries before and then ask them to change how they view the world, the gods, the afterlife, the origins of life, how they should worship, the morals they live by, all because of this story? And how do you do it when you don't even understand the language? How do you express concepts like the resurrection, like the Holy Trinity, in a culture with completely different frames of reference about life and death? The Jesuits weren't working with a spiritual blank slate. They were entering into a rich, sophisticated, powerful belief system built on ideas and assumptions wildly different from their own. But Francis was more than just a devout follower. He was a skilled diplomat. He made a positive impression on the local daimo, the feudal lord who ruled over the people who lived and worked on his land. He also helped broker relationships between the Japanese and the increasing flow of Portuguese traders. Japan was still far from being unified, and among competing warlords, there was a natural interest in European technology and European firearms. We have no record of whether the Jesuit Francis Xavier saw this as a worthy thing to facilitate in the name of converting people. He couldn't speak Japanese, but the Jesuits have always believed in rigorous study and self-improvement, so he worked hard at it. And he got traction when he started to refer to the Christian god as Dainichi, a Japanese name for Buddha. And here's where you start to see the almost impossible barriers of understanding to what the Jesuits wanted to do. Because to the Buddhists, Buddha is not an all-powerful god, but a human who achieved transcendence, an enlightened teacher who showed followers the path to nirvana. In Buddhism, every person is a part of a long cycle of birth and rebirth that continues until we learn to rise above earthly desires. 
Francis Xavier was successfully building a bridge by adopting terms and concepts that the Japanese understood. But to many Japanese, including the samurai class and even Buddhist monks, this Christianity he spoke of simply sounded like another form of Buddhism. This culture had already synthesized Buddhism with Shinto, and perhaps that what was happening for some in this case. The missionaries brought paintings and other Christian artwork. They brought plays and other forms of performing arts that could be translated into Japanese, trying to tell Christian stories to followers of a foreign faith. All told, Francis Xavier spent two years in Japan before returning to India. When he left, he had established a thriving Jesuit mission in a growing port town of Nagasaki. In 1579, 30 years after Francis's arrival, an estimated 130,000 Japanese were practicing Catholics. Nagasaki became known as the Rome of Japan due to the sheer number of not just Christians, but clergy as well. And by 1590, half of the Jesuits in Japan were of Japanese birth. Jesuits expanded their mission and actively cultivated influence with the government, both locally and nationally. A powerful warlord named Oda Nobunaga was celebrating a string of military victories and seemed within reach of unifying the nation. A Jesuit companion of Francis Xavier by the name of Louis Froyce was trusted by Oda and even lived in his home. But the warlord died before realizing his ambition. He was betrayed and ambushed in the middle of a tea ceremony and, as a result, asked his page to set his temple on fire so that no one could claim his head as a trophy and then committed seppuku, suicide by ritual disembowelment. His successor, Toyotome Hideyoshi, brought Japan even closer to unification under a single military ruler. But his attitude towards Christianity took a turn. When he saw that some Christian daimo were destroying Buddhist temples and territories that they conquered, he became concerned that this new religion might not synthesize harmoniously into Japanese culture. That it showed signs of being intrusive and intolerant, and a possible threat. He confronted Christian missionaries with a series of questions. Why are you so enthusiastic about making Japanese people into Christians? Why do the daimo you convert to Christianity destroy shrines and temples? And why do you eat cows and horses even though they're beneficial to humans? And why do you buy Japanese people and take them abroad as slaves? These growing doubts about Christianity were violently underlined in 1596 with what's now known as the San Felipe Incident. The San Felipe was a Spanish galleon sailing under the command of Matias de Lancheco. It was shipwrecked off the coast of Shioku, one of the four main Japanese islands. Local samurai seized the cargo over Lancheco's protests, and he was told that if he had a problem, he needed to talk to Toyotomi about it. This is when, according to records, the ship's pilot, Francisco de Olandia, showed Toyotomi's staff a map of the world, highlighting the breadth of the Spanish Empire, all the territory it dominated. It's difficult to confirm the nuances of a conversation which took place centuries ago, but the conclusion the Japanese drew from it were that missionaries were a part of how the Spanish extended their empire, that their function was to weaken a country before it was invaded and conquered. Now, there are full textbooks to be written about the relationship between religion and colonialism, and about the sometimes unsavory symbiosis between churches and empires. 
And we don't want to cheapen that complex topic by making a snap judgment on the ultimate truth of this boast made by this Spanish pilot and what it implies about the motives of Francis Xavier. What is most important to the story is that Toyotomi Hideyoshi had ample reason to find it plausible and that, in this delicate international situation, Francisco de Olandia had just made a politically disastrous maneuver. The Japanese were not intimidated. Instead, they turned decisively against the small foothold Christianity had made on their islands. Laws were passed against practicing the religion, 137 churches were burned or destroyed, and 27 Christians in Nagasaki were martyred. The Jesuits were ordered to leave Japan, and a document ordering this purge in 1587 is still preserved today. Some of the Jesuits left with great public ceremony, but some remained behind in secret, tending to their congregations. And with each passing year, the danger of their mission grew. Once greeted with suspicion, then welcomed with a cautious, open mind, Christians in Japan were now hunted and persecuted. The 16th century there is often referred to as the Christian century because of this dramatic rise and fall. Toyotomi died in 1598, and in 1601, his successor, Togawa Ieyasu, finally achieved the dream of unifying Japan under one ruler. After defeating an army nearly twice the size of his, he was named Shogun, the supreme military commander. It is one of the most important moments in Japanese history, and the Tokugawa shogunate ruled the nation for the next two and a half centuries. Tokugawa was willing to maintain some relationships with European powers. He struck a trade agreement with the Dutch East India Company and frequently consulted with an English shipwright named William Adams, but he shared his predecessor's concern that missionaries preaching Christianity could be a part of a plan of conquest from Spain or Portugal. In 1614, he outlawed Christianity completely. Part 2 The largest rebellion in Japanese history was, in part, a Christian one, and its leader was a 16-year-old boy named Amaksa Shiro Tokisada. His story exists much more in legend than in documented history, and as such, how we characterize it depends strongly on who's telling it. Some describe him as the child of heaven, blessed with miraculous powers and leading a war for the one true God, a kind of Japanese Joan of Arc. To others, he was an unrelenting radical, spreading death and discord. Other than, quote, some brief imprecise references in official reports, end quote, we don't have any records of the actual young man. It's strongly believed that he came from a Christian samurai family, that he was devoted to his faith, and that his Christian name was either Jerome or Francisco. But the rebellion he's credited with was very real. 37,000 Christians rising up against the Tokugawa shogunate in 1637. It's called the Shimbara Revolution. But this is where we have to be more careful not to oversimplify this event as purely religious. Not everyone who participated did so because of Christianity. For many, it was an economic revolt from a peasant class. Already overworked, overtaxed, and with nearly all the fruits of their labor going to wealthy landowners, their discontent 
turned into open hostility after a punishing new financial levy was handed down in the summer of 1637. It stands to reason that, politically, the shogunate would see an advantage in drawing attention away from their exploitation of the poor by painting the conflict as purely one of foreign-backed zealots undermining the nation. And the rebellion's leader, Amaksa Shiro, seemed to play into that role. Here's what history tells us. Shimbara is in the south of Japan, to the east of Nagasaki. Amaksa was the name for a series of islands off the coast next to Shimbara. At the time of the rebellion, they had a significant Christian population. Facing famine and unending repression by their government, they rebelled against their daimo. They soon found allies, what are known as ronin, samurai without masters to serve, as well as other samurai from Christian families nearby. And on December 17, 1637, this rebel force rose up and killed the tax collectors and then laid siege to Tomioka and Hondo castles. There, they were confronted by the armies of the shogun's allies, and fearing their disorganized force would fail in open combat, they retreated across the strait to a former site of Hara Castle. Breaking down the boats they'd used to cross the water, they took the wood and fortified the remains. The shogun's armies surrounded the castle and laid siege. This rebel force, which had grown to 37,000, now faced 120,000 trained and disciplined warriors. The shogunate was taking no chances. They asked for cannons and gunpowder from the Dutch, bombarding the wooden fortifications. But Amaksa Shiro's forces held firm for months and succeeded in killing thousands of the shogun's forces. They weren't equipped to last forever under siege, though, and by April they were out of gunpowder and out of food. And on April 12, 1638, the shogun's forces breached the castle in a full frontal assault, and after three days of fighting, the rebel force was vanquished. The rebels who survived the battle were decapitated. So were any citizens of Shimbara or Amaksa who were suspected of sympathizing with the rebels. Amaksa Shiro was likewise beheaded and his head was put on display in Nagasaki as a warning to others. Portuguese merchants were driven from the country. By 1639, an edict from the shogun forbid the Portuguese from ever entering Japan again. A Portuguese ship sent to Nagasaki in 1640 to ask the shogunate to reconsider the ban was burned, its crew and envoys executed. And Christianity taking the blame for the whole conflict was driven even further underground. The Christian religion has many stories of martyrs, of people who gave everything for their faith. The story of Amaksa Shiro is rarely told among those stories, though, perhaps because we know so little about him but perhaps also because there's no silver lining to his actions, no renewal of faith brought on by his sacrifice. Indeed, after Shimbara, many Japanese Christians abandoned the faith. Not only had the shogun triumphed militarily, he had slaughtered much of the remaining Christian community in his country and successfully orchestrated the justification to continue repressing and persecuting the religion and everyone who practiced it. Japan entered a long period of isolationism, of withdrawing from almost any contact with the outside world. And if there was any Christianity on the island, it existed only in pockets. Amaksa Shiro had become a figure of folklore in Japan, most often as a villain. 
the Shimbara Rebellion was reenacted in a series of kabuki and bunraku plays called Kirishitan Mono, or Christian plays. Given the violent dominance of the Tokugawa shogunate, depicting the young rebel who worshipped an outlawed god as anything but a villain would have been a dangerous undertaking. And to this day, he appears in Japanese culture, even in a popular video game in which he renounces God over his failed rebellion, turns to worship Satan, and raises a demonic army from the dead. Interestingly, his first appearance in a Japanese movie happened in 1962, at this time when Japanese students were rebelling against conservative authorities. This film recast him as a tragic hero, an oppressed activist smothered by the state. With so little evidence to reveal the reality of this young man to us, he survives as a symbol in ongoing debates about freedom and faith, a name to be invoked because of the immense gravity of the battle he helped instigate long ago. During the centuries after Shimbara, the shogunate had a special group of samurai whose job was to investigate, root out, and destroy any sign of Christianity. But even without missionaries to guide them, some Japanese Christians carried on and developed ways to hide their faith. They became known as the Kakura Kirishitan, hidden Christians. It was too dangerous to keep a Bible or even to write down any records of their faith, so it became a religion of oral tradition, stories repeated and passed down from generation to generation. They created artwork that would secretly signal their faith, a statue of Buddha with a hidden crucifix on the bottom, or with an image of Canon, the Buddhist goddess of mercy made with secret iconography that, if you knew what to look for, would signal that it was actually an image of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What happens to a religion after hundreds of years of only being practiced by word of mouth? Remember, there had already been an enormous language barrier just to introduce Christian stories and concepts in Japan. And now that they were on their own, practicing in whispers, what was it evolving into? To understand what happened next, we need to talk about the emperor, the son of heaven, the divine head of the Shinto religion, the traditional ruler of Japan who sits on the chrysanthemum throne. To this day, Japan has an emperor. The current one is His Majesty Naruhito, the 126th emperor, who ascended to the throne on May 1st, 2019, after his father abdicated. His role is almost completely ceremonial, but the line of emperors he represents goes at least as far back as the 5th century, and possibly hundreds of years before that. The position of emperor has meant different things throughout that long history. Sometimes an all-powerful ruler, sometimes a figurehead providing legitimacy to the military shogun. The shogun has been effectively more powerful than the emperor for a period of nearly seven centuries, until a series of events now known as the Meiji Restoration. In 1853, a fleet of American naval vessels led by Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Edo Bay, now known as Tokyo Bay. What Perry found was a nation that, after two centuries cut off from the outside world, had fallen far behind in industry and technology. 
the Tokugawa shogunate had succeeded in stamping out threats to its power, in extracting uncountable wealth from the peasants of Japan, but it had failed to advance its civilization. Commodore Perry was there to open up trade negotiations. The overwhelming power of his navy, which the Japanese called the Black Ships, assured that those trade deals were immensely one-sided. The outside world had returned to Japan and so had Christian missionaries. And when the Japanese people realized that they had been weakened by their rulers and made ripe for exploitation by foreigners, a movement arose that ended the power of the shogunate and restored the emperor as the true head of state, with the daimo loyal to him forming a new government. And the new constitution shepherded by Emperor Meiji actually provided for some limited freedom of religion. As missionaries returned, they were shocked to encounter the Kakure Karishitan, the descendants of Christians who'd been practicing in secret for over 200 years. In 1865, a group of 15 Japanese peasants approached Bernard Pajitian, the first European Christian missionary in Nagasaki since 1614, telling him, our hearts are the same as yours. They expressed a fervent desire to see religious artwork depicting Mary and Jesus. Pajitian and the other missionaries quickly learned that, after generations of isolation and oral storytelling, that the Japanese understood Christianity very differently. They had a holy trinity, but without a holy spirit. Remember that in Japan there are almost infinite spirits occupying everything. Their trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Mother, or the Virgin Mary assuming a place equal to God and Jesus. The Kakure Karishitan had come to believe that Mary was an incarnation of the Buddha, Avaloki Tashvara. The current Dalai Lama, by the way, is considered to be another incarnation of this same spirit. And in Japan's belief, Jesus' time on earth didn't end with crucifixion. He spent 40 days afterward teaching and then went on to fight many battles to defend his followers. You can see how the history of Japanese Christians, the violent repression, and the importance of keeping the lessons of their faith alive may have woven itself into the stories they shared about Jesus. Much in the way that animals isolated on the Galapagos Islands took on unique forms which Charles Darwin studied to develop his theory of evolution, Christianity, when isolated on the islands of Japan, evolved in its own unique way. Part 3 Now that we've packed this knowledge with us, let's make our pilgrimage to the little town of Shingo and the burial mounds where the locals will tell you with absolute faith and certainty that Jesus and his brother are buried. That's right, I said brother, and actually it's not even all of Jesus' brother, it's just his ear. Much of this story comes from a set of papers known as the Tagonuchi documents, they were reputedly several hundred years old, but we can't do anything to verify this because after they were discovered in 1936, they were supposedly destroyed during World War II. The museum in Shingo has what they describe as reproductions of these documents, but the consensus among scholars is that they aren't authentic. They're either a hoax or a sincere effort that doesn't rise to the level of grounded history. And yet, there are details to see and experience in Shingo which confound attempts to dismiss the whole story as a tourist fabrication. It's worth remembering at this point that, 
Even in the approved books of the Bible, there are massive gaps in the life of Jesus, and only the Gospels of Matthew and Luke describe his infancy. And from those books that we get the story of his birth in Bethlehem, his family's travel to Egypt, and later return to Judea. Only one incident from his childhood is told, a single incident in the temple where he is around 12, and then the story jumps forward to the beginning of his public ministry, by which time he is 30. What happened in those missing years is open to speculation, and there are many traditional beliefs. Some assert that he traveled to India and others that he went back to Egypt. Others simply state that he stayed in Bethlehem, became a carpenter, and lived quietly until the age of 30. The Taganucci documents tell a different story, though. They say that during those missing years, Jesus journeyed through Asia, spent 10 years in Japan studying theology, before taking those lessons with him to Judea to begin his ministry. As it is in the Bible, his teaching and the crowds they inspired were a threat to the ruling powers which conspired to kill him. But in this version, Jesus escapes crucifixion, and instead the Romans crucify his brother, James. And then Jesus took a lock of his mother's hair and an ear from James's body and began the long journey back to Japan, where he ended up in Shingo Village. There, he lived a simple life as a teacher, adopting the name Daidenko Taro Jurai. He married a local woman, fathered three children, and lived to the age of 106 before passing away and being buried next to his brother's ear. Opposite the earthen mounds marking their final resting place are the tombs of the Sawaguchi family, allegedly Jesus' Japanese descendants. And here's one of those details that make this story all the more interesting. The Sawaguchi family crest incorporates a Star of David, the six-point shape recognized around the world for indicating Jewish identity. Every year in Japan, usually in late August or early September, is the Buddhist festival of Oban, like Dia de los Muertos. It's a holiday to celebrate the dead, especially your ancestors who have passed on. There are many wonderful traditions associated with Oban, but in Shingo, there's one tradition which happens nowhere else in Japan. The locals sing a song called Nanyada. The lyrics aren't in Japanese, in fact, they're basically nonsense. But theology professor Iji Kawamorita has studied these lyrics and believes there's a case to be made that these supposed nonsense words are actually a corrupted form of Hebrew. Kawamorita believes you can trace these lyrics of Nanyada back to a Hebrew phrase meaning, we praise your holy name. But how could this be possible? The people in and around Shingo village are quick to point out local variations in speech, custom, belief, and behavior, and even differences in eye color and physical appearance that distinguish them from the residents of nearby villages. They claim that the source of these differences traces back to those descendants of Jesus marrying within the community, effectively making every resident there the offspring of Christ. Now, are these differences significant enough that you could make a genetic study of them? Probably not, but the thought of being descended from the Messiah might simply make a person in an isolated community unconsciously likely to exaggerate small details. And there's one fairly glaring fact which makes the whole story of Shingo Village vulnerable to scrutiny. The so-called grave of Jesus is marked by a cross. 
Locals claim that the crosses have been there since before the arrival of the original Jesuit missionaries, but this raises some questions. In Jesus' time, the cross wasn't a symbol of his ministry. It was an instrument of Roman torture and murder. The Bible says nothing about his tomb being marked with a cross, and there was no burial tradition connected to crosses. The Christian church didn't even begin to use the cross as a symbol until at least the 4th or 5th century hundreds of years after the story told in the Takanoichi documents. And if, as claimed in these documents, Jesus was never crucified, why would the cross become a symbol at all? The historical record just doesn't give us enough to draw any conclusions about what happened in Shingo, how this story took root. But if we look back on what we know about Christianity in Japan, it's possible to formulate a couple of plausible theories. It's quite possible that, centuries ago, a European was shipwrecked near Shingo and was sheltered by the locals and fathered children there. Or it's also possible that, even as missionaries were being expelled by the Tawagawa shogunate, one chose to stay behind, hiding in this isolated place. And centuries after, as the Kakure Karishitan practiced their faith in secret, with oral storytelling the only safe way to talk about Jesus, it's quite plausible that the stories of Jesus and the stories of their local teacher and missionary started to overlap with each new generation. Remember how vast the language and culture gap is and how the Japanese created their own ideas about the concepts of the Holy Trinity? Isn't it possible they could see one of God's emissaries on earth as effectively the same thing as God? Part 4 The Christian religion is filled with stories of faith tested by trial of people who suffer but endure in their belief that salvation awaits them. Why would you let this happen, and why would you do this to me, is a question that some pose to the Almighty in biblical stories when they're tested. And there's a final story to tell on this subject, which is fascinating. Remember when I said that when the Jesuits first established themselves in Japan, they did so in Nagasaki, that the port town became the center of Christianity in Japan? That remained so even during the years of the hidden Christians, worshiping in secret. And it was still true on August 9, 1945, when the American Army Air Force B-29 bomber known as Box Car dropped an atomic bomb on the city, our second nuclear attack on Japan after the bombing of Hiroshima three days before. Nagasaki wasn't the designated target that day. The plutonium bomb, nicknamed Fat Man, was supposed to be detonated over the city of Kokura, but the cloud cover and thick smoke from other bombing campaigns made it impossible for the crew of Box Car to find their primary target. Nagasaki was their backup, and after changing course, they found that it too was obscured by cloud cover. But just before they were set to turn back, the clouds parted, and Captain Kermit K. Behan announced that he could see a viable target, and Fat Man was dropped. In this effort, though, he failed to account for the effect of the wind, and the atomic bomb drifted. It didn't hit the military target, the Mitsubishi factories, at the port on the edge of town. Instead, it exploded 1,650 feet off the ground, directly over Immaculate Conception Cathedral, the largest Roman Catholic church in Japan. Of the 100,000 people who died in Nagasaki from the atomic bomb, 10,000 were Japanese Christians. 
The combination of circumstances that leads to a moment like this is so far beyond unlikely. It's the sort of impossibility that people will unconsciously describe as miraculous. But that seems like an obscene way to describe this as what's the opposite of a miracle. There aren't many Christians on earth who have to carry their faith along a darker path than have Japanese Christians. The Christians of Nagasaki saw themselves as God's chosen people in their nation and understandably wondered how it is in the face of that that so many of them were taken in the horror of nuclear fire. A 2003 article in the New York Times described how many of the traditions of the Kakure Karishitan are vanishing as older generations pass along. In a way, it makes sense. They no longer need to fear torture or execution for their beliefs. Oral storytelling was a way to keep the faith alive when owning a Bible could mean death. Does it still have a purpose now? In that article, the 85-year-old pastor of a Kokure Karishitan church in a rural village outside of Nagasaki is quoted as saying, I am worried about the future. I am not sure that it will last. There's some elusive connection between the resilient, often extraordinary methods the Japanese Christians evolved and those burial mounds far up in the mountains in Shingo. The stories they tell are, if we apply a few strict questions of history, impossible. And yet the power of those stories has affected the course of history. Faith is, of course, belief in things that are not seen but real. It's a rich subject to contemplate, and whether you're deep in the beautiful Japanese woods or at home for the holidays, relish them as you celebrate them. They've worked hard to get here. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host, and I produce this show with Evadine Hendricks and our creator-director, Dom Purdy. This story was prepared for us by Kevin Wetmore. Our senior story editor is Nicholas Thurkettle, and our fact-checker is Nicholas Abraham. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a five-star rating wherever you're listening. It really helps the show, and we love to hear your feedback. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night. There is no turning back. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Follow the white rabbit. Where did the first Portuguese land in Japan? Where did the first Portuguese land in Japan?